On this week's TribCast, we'll talk about what we learned from Texas' latest school accountability ratings, where the El Paso shooter got his gun, and the latest on the House Speaker saga. But before we do, I want to thank our TribCast sponsors. Texans Since, presented by Texas A&M University. Help us learn more about what makes Texans tick, what keeps you moving, and what keeps you here by sharing your own Texans Since story at texastribune.org slash Since. And the Texas Farm Bureau. Interested in running for the Texas legislature, commissioner's court, or other political office? Sign up for the Texas Farm Bureau's campaign seminar. We'll walk you through the process. Register at txfb.us slash campaign19. Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Friday, August 30th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Hello. Criminal justice reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. Hi, Jolie. Uh, public education reporter Aaliyah Swaby. Hello. Hi, Aaliyah. Uh, and our uh, politics reporter Alex Samuels will join us by phone a little later, so stay tuned for her. As always, we'll take questions from our listeners in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do it using the hashtag Tribcast. Okay, uh, Ross, I have brought you here again this week to tell us the latest on the House Speaker saga. Uh, you know, we've had some uh, headlines from Dustin Burroughs. We've had some headlines out of the governor's office. Um, for starters, just give us, again, the foundation. Remind us the Cliff's Notes version of what we're dealing with here. The session ended, and Dennis Bonin told all the House members they shouldn't go after their colleagues, that uh, they should, you know, spend their time on other political things than going after incumbents. And then a couple of days later, on June 12th, he and Dustin Burroughs, the head of the Ways and Means Committee, and also at that time, the head of the House Republican Caucus, met with Michael Quinn Sullivan, who's the head of Empower Texans, a regular um, provocateur of the Republican establishment in Texas. He was a thorn in, in Joe Strauss's paw for a long, long time. And they had a meeting at the Capitol, and uh, the way it was represented by Michael, Michael Quinn Sullivan, who also taped it, but has not made the tape, uh, the recording public. More on that in a second. <laughs> um, Bonin and Burroughs offered to give um, Sullivan's colleagues floor passes, me media, media floor passes. passes during the session in return for Sullivan's opposition to 10 incumbent Republican House members. Um, so not just House members, not just Democrats, but Republicans in the 83-member majority. Um, Bonin denied that. Burroughs denied that. Sullivan came out, said, I've got a tape. We've been going back and forth. Sullivan's played the tape for a number of people, mostly from his end of the Republican pool or from the conservative pool. And they've mostly represented it as, you know, saying, you know, it's, Sullivan's telling, right. telling yeah. the truth. Um, so we're basically now at a kind of a standstill. The House is divided roughly into three groups. A small group has said Bonin should resign or move aside from the Speaker's position. Burroughs, in fact, resigned his position as House Republican Caucus Chairman, um, but he declared for re-election and Greg Abbott endorsed him for re-election. Mm -hmm. um, there's a second group that has taken Bonin's side, said, boy, this was a stupid set of things to say, but we forgive him and you know we'll, we'll back him as Speaker. And then the vast majority of the House hasn't said one word. So right. we're... Um, kind of at that stall. The Democrats sued. They want a copy of the recording. I'm sure they want to depose everybody <laughs> and uh, want to raise hell in, in a general way. I'm trying to think if I'm leaving out any pieces here. Well, I'm going to ask you for the pieces that are missing. So for a long time, Dustin Burroughs had been super quiet about this. We were waiting for him to, to wade in. He has now 
called for the release of the full recording. Why? You know, he and Bonin and, in fact, everybody, you know, the governor, the lieutenant governor has said, get this recording out there. Mm-hmm. And there's, there are a bunch of theories. Until you hear the recording, you don't know exactly why. Um, but, you know, so theory one is it doesn't say exactly what Sullivan says it said, or it says it in a context that's more understandable. Um, so they think that, you know, once everybody hears the recording, they'll back off a little bit. Theory two is it's just as bad as Sullivan says, but let's get this out of the way. Let's rip off the Band-Aid and stop this steady drip, right. drip, drip. That's my guess. Um, I can't, like, it's been dragging on for so long, and if so many people are saying, like, yeah, this is pretty much what he said, like, Michael Flynn Sullivan's right, just, like, end it. But what, so that's, that is the great question. So does Michael Quinn Sullivan have any incentive to release this publicly? Yeah. I think he's going to. And I think, I think what's going to, I think he's going to have an incentive. I don't know that he's going to re- release the recording. Oh, I forgot to say that the Texas Rangers are investigating this. And they do and have they the do have a copy of the recording. <laughs> um, and so they could come back if they find something they think was criminal, um, then they would refer it probably to a, a DA um, either in Brazoria County where Bonin's from or in Lubbock County where Burroughs is from for possible prosecution. Um, if they don't, but if would they, it be subject to open records laws? Could we get it that I, way? I don't think so. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff is biased in favor of the accused. And if you're accused of something that, you know, they, they find you didn't do, if you're exonerated, you know, they generally don't release all the evidence that might make you look bad you know, and ruin your reputation, even though you're innocent. So mm-hmm. the the bias in these things is to, you know, nothing here, nothing to see, everybody move along. This one's so public and it involves uh, trust in the legislature that I think, you know, a lot of members of the legislature, and as I said, a lot of the state's leaders have said, this tape ought to be out there so we can all hear it and see what we think about it. So do you think it will be released? You think yes, eventually. But in what capacity do you think it will be released? Do you think it will be released mm-hmm. as like, you know, Soon or as or in campaign advertising or in when will we get this thing? I you know I don't please know. please give us the damn tape. <laughs> I would have guessed by now. You know one of the interesting things to me it's a sidebar but it's just interesting is if you're going to claim you're a journalist as Sullivan and his group have a journalist would have already published that if it right. was ours we'd you know the whole transcript would be all over the place and we'd be doing special podcasts about it mm-hmm. and we might get right <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, I, th- I think ultimately, you know, as a matter of politics, if you're playing that side and, you know, blow off the journalism claim, um, which would be my preference, um, if you're looking at the politics of this, this is useful politically if the voters know about it, and in particular if the Republican voters know about it and can judge for themselves whether they're with or against Sullivan's side or Bonin's side of this thing. And in order to have a continuing effect into March, in the primaries, they're going to have to get this tape out in some way. Mm-hmm. So I'm very curious about uh, Abbott's endorsement of Burroughs. Tell me, so what kind of negotiations behind the scenes had to happen to make that happen? You know, I don't, I don't know what was behind it. Um, you know, I just know that Burroughs was very quiet. Michael Quinn Sullivan made these allegations public in a blog post on, I think it was July 25th. Um, and... This thing kind of exploded from there. Burroughs was there supposedly as kind of a witness for Bonin, you know, and never came forward as a witness to say, you know, Bonin said right. this or Solomon said that. You know, he 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 dug in and was very, very quiet until he finally came out on in local media, Chad Hasty's show on the uh, uh, Friendly radio. Media, yeah. Yeah, well, it was friendly, but it was actually a pretty good interview yeah. and, and came out and said, um, 
there in an interview with the Lubbock Avalanche Journal in an interview with uh, Pratt, uh, Robert Pratt, um, in the afternoon radio and then with a TV station there. Um, I'm running for re-election, and I have the governor's endorsement. And then he started to explain his side of the story. And actually, his side of the story sort of ran over the endorsement and the declaration of, uh-huh. of candidacy. But, you know, um, I think he was hoping to come out and get a clean break, get the governor's endorsement and run. And, you know, the story got in the way of that. But why would the governor, you know, like wade into this at all right now with this endorsement? I don't know. I got to assume that somebody on the governor's staff or someone in the governor's circle has heard the tape, mm-hmm. heard the recording, um, and has made a judgment about it and decided. The governor either. himself, right? I mean, I, uh, Greg Abbott must have gotten his hands on this. I I would assume that he has access either directly or indirectly to all of the information before he makes mm-hmm. an endorsement, right? Um, you know, and and right now uh, it looks like a bold endorsement. By the time we get to March, it may not even matter, and yeah. it and it does have the effect of you know, spooking other candidates who might be considering Republican primary challenges to Burroughs out of the race. Right. Well, if, if he's got the governor on his side, I'm not going to be able to raise any money. Maybe I won't run after all. Right. A question coming in from social media. Donna asks, is the issue here, you know, the public's trust in the legislature or trust among legislators themselves? I think it's more door number two. You mm-hmm. know, speakers are elected by the 150 members. They're they're one of the 150. They're elected by the other 149. And the and the compact here is you get the high chair and the corner office and all that power, and you stand between us and incoming you know missiles from the Senate, the governor, the public, the Michael Quinn Sullivans, and all of that stuff. You you catch the javelins over there, and we'll let you have this fancy job. And this is a case where Bonin is alleged not to have been doing that. The other thing I forgot to mention on the governor's thing is you have to remember Burroughs carried the property tax reforms that the governor really wanted mm. and got in the last session. So there's, you know, there's something transactional there too. All right. All right well, thank you, Ross. Uh, Aaliyah, let's pivot to talking about the latest accountability ratings for Texas public schools, which came out last week and which you have been breaking down ever since and will continue to be over the coming <laughs> weeks. Busy girl. Uh, what were the biggest uh, high-level takeaways for you from these uh, from these numbers, from these grades? So I think the most uh, urgent thing that came out of it was that there's uh, three school districts, including the state's largest school district, Houston ISD, that are at risk of being um, taken over by the state um, or having their uh, low-performing schools closed um, because of this a newer, uh, you know, higher-stakes um, accountability system that uh, is more focused on, you know, uh, shutting down schools or like or uh, forcing better results for for schools and districts that are not doing well for multiple years in a row. Um, so I think that's the top one. I think there's a lot of um, speculation, a lot of scrambling around what's going to happen in Houston. Um, there's also a separate investigation in Houston that might result in the the takeover of its school board either way. Um, so I think you know what does it mean for for Texas if its largest uh, school district, which actually um, got a B in the state ratings, um, is, you know, no longer managing its own affairs, no longer doing its own hiring. Um, but it's, you know, at the will of whoever the commissioner ends up, um, 
directing to to take over that school board. So, I mean, let's drill a little deeper into Houston because there are a couple different aspects of what you just said that I think are fascinating. The first piece you said is they got a B in these A through F scores. So this is not an F, whereas you have a lot of districts that got Fs. Also, it's it's a huge district. I mean, I'm wondering if there's ever, there's been anything comparable in, you know, in the state's history of district takeovers. How can you, for starters, let's hit the first one. Like, how can you get taken over even if you have a, you know, an, a better than average score in the ratings. Right. So uh, it only takes one school that's been low performing for more than four years for the state to consider taking over an entire school district. So for Houston, you know, a lot of its low performing schools actually did better this year. Um, and there's one school that I think it's its seventh F or seventh, you know, uh, unacceptable rating in a row. Um, and, you know, I think the, the Chronicle did some sort of like, uh, informal number crunch and it's a matter of just a handful of students, mm-hmm. you know, doing, doing better or, um, you know, having some sort of, um, like one more qualification that made the difference for this school and for the entire district as a result. Wow. That's incredible. Um, so this A through F system, this is the second year it's been used, right? But the first year for campuses. Mm-hmm. And so how have local administrators, how have local teachers been reacting to this year's rollout of letter grades? I think it's, you know, the same as, as last year in that, um, you know, they're, they're uh, talking more about what, what actually goes into the, the measures. You know, a lot of it is based on the, the state standardized test on STAR um, and this legislative session, there was a lot of tension around STAR and whether or not it's a, a viable measure of how mm-hmm. students are doing. Um, and I think, you know, the answer is is no, that it's not. Ob- it's obviously not the, the most comprehensive measure. It measures, um, you know, academic performance on, on a really specific test. Um, the, it has, um, you know, the way that the, the grades are awarded, they take into account other things as well, but, but a lot of it is... Um, you know, is dependent on on these scores, and um, you know, you can see the the way that poverty, um, yeah. student poverty, uh, plays a role in in what grade schools are getting. Um, there is some correlation between it. So most of the Ds and Fs went to schools with higher levels of student poverty, um, and you can see, you know, we did a, a like a chart of this that we we've done the last couple of years, and um, it's it's the same as last year, where you see. Um, you know, the schools that are have lower levels of poverty, they're mostly A's and B's. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some outliers, and there are a lot of schools also that are um, higher poverty that are doing well. Yeah, I do want to talk about those mm-hmm. a little bit. I mean, you, there were some specific findings out of South Texas, some schools that, you know, were doing really well in the face of pretty dramatic poverty. What are the sort of through lines in those, in those districts and those schools? Yeah, I think that some of the things that um, I've heard as, as theories about why those high, high poverty um, districts and schools in, in South Texas are doing so well is that they have, you know, potentially better uh, like wraparound services for kids and their families. So, um, you know, one superintendent I talked to um, in, in Valley View ISD, which is in um, FAR. Um, P-H-A-R-R. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's also FAR from here, but yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, he uh, talked a lot about, you know, free... Um, medical services for for kids and and um, meals for kids and also their families and wow. you know there's there's a lot that um, the schools do to make up for the poverty um, or for the the gaps that that poverty 
um, means for the for those students in in their educations. It's fascinating. Uh, one more question I want to ask you about this. Um, another one of your big findings relates to charter schools that are used uh, increasingly in Texas to take over failing public schools. Um, did any of those charter schools? We'll talk a little bit about sort of like the politics surrounding that, and then did did we see sort of any massive turnarounds there? Um, so the state in 2017 um, decided that it wanted to incentivize. Uh, traditional public schools to work with charter schools, um, especially to turn around, uh, you know, these low-performing schools um, in in the traditional public school districts. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I think the first thing is that not a lot of school districts ended up using it. Um, it was supposed to be, you know, they would get extra money, they would get a two-year pause on having their ratings accounts count against them if they were uh, doing poorly, um, but a lot of districts actually struggle to use it because of the backlash against charters. Um, and the ones that did use it, a lot of them actually ended up going through this, you know, a roundabout way of, of avoiding working with charters. So they created their own nonprofits. They hmm. staffed them with former administrators. Basically created their own uh, shadow non shadow uh, charter schools. <laughs> but, yeah, they, yeah, they, yeah, they kind of did. And then, and then worked with, with them uh, to manage these low-performing schools. Fascinating. Um, and so you saw a, a mixed bag, I think, when you look at the first cohort of schools that were managed by these partners. Um, seven out of 12 of them received Fs um, after the first year. Actually, a good number of them, uh, before the partnership started, had increased in their rating, and then after the partnership now... Wow. Um, you know, ended Back up down. decreasing some by two grades, hmm. you know, which is, you know, like 20 points in, in the score, um, which is a, a big decrease. Yeah. I think that um, a turnaround is is something that's really hard to do. I think nationally you see people really trying to see what best practices are across the country, um, but there's not a consistent, um, you know, there's there's some threads that, that show up and things that have been successful um, but you can find, you know, something that's successful in one school. The same thing happens in, in a different school and it doesn't work. Um, every school is different. Um, if you don't have strong leadership, if you don't have, um, if you have a lot of teacher turnover, it's not going to work. If you have a community that hasn't bought in, it's not going to work. It's a lot of really like quantitative factors that you can't really, um, you know, uh, just pin down to a number that, that make a difference. Sounds like running a nonprofit newsroom. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Aaliyah. Um, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Conference for Women. Texas, tickets are still available for opening night at the Texas Conference for Women. Learn more at txconferenceforwomen.org. And Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Want healthcare insights? Listen to the Blue Promise podcast hosted by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more at standingwithtexas.com. I also want to tell you one more big uh, Texas Tribune Festival announcement this week. Congressman Will Hurd will open the festival on Thursday, September 26th with a conversation with our CEO, Evan Smith. As a reminder, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will close the festival on September 28th. Check out the full lineup and make plans to get yourself down here September 26th through 28th, festival.texastribune.org. Okay, I want to jump into two big stories we've been following in the aftermath of the El Paso shooting uh, with two great reporters. And I want to start with you, Jolie. Um, you broke some major national news this week on the weapon used in this uh, horrific racist massacre. Uh, what did you learn and how did you learn it? Hmm. <laughs> um, so we got uh, an internal DPS report uh, that basically gave a summary of the initial interview with the suspect um, 
after the shooting and it gave some information about what he said uh, from his gun. So he told police, according to this report, that he bought his gun, which was an AK-47, from Romania and that he bought a thousand rounds of ammunition from Russia. Um, So that's what he told police. What gun experts and people I've talked to believe that actually means is that he bought imported weapons so like weapons that had been in like an ak-47 that had been imported from romania ammo that had been imported from russia um and then bought them online a a weapon you can't have delivered to your door obviously you need to go through a federal background check so he had it delivered to a local gun shop in his like near his hometown up in north texas um, in the DFW area. And then the ammo, if imported ammo can be, if it's legal in the receiving state, which it is in Texas, uh, can be received directly to you. So the idea would have been that he would have had to go online and order these things, but they would be shipped through a gun dealer or the gun dealer already sold those things? Like, yeah, so you order them online. There are websites. I've been looking on these websites. Like you can yeah, you're going to be you're going to be like order. subject to your own FBI sorry, your browser <laughs> but, history. I bet you the ads that show up on your Facebook page are totally. interesting. Yeah. 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 New guns. So there's this big co- there's this company out of Florida that is ma- the main importer of these Romanian AK47 like this version of an AK47 um and they do this like they're weapons that have been they just are exported Romania according to this report that's, that they issued last year said they exported not about 9,000 semi-automatic rifles to the U.S. last year. Um, so this is common. Um, people do this. They buy a gun online that's been imported. Um, and it's, you know, through this whatever shop or online store, and it'll be sent to a local dealer, which then runs the federal background check. Um, and then you can pick it up that day. Sometimes you have to wait a couple days or you might not be able to pick it up if mm-hmm. you get rejected. And so why is why is any of is that particular aspect controversial? I mean, why is this sort of significant in the Second Amendment or gun rights fight? Um, I don't know if it's a huge, it's very controversial. It's mm-hmm. just something I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Right, that um, you can do with this. Yeah, yeah. that like <laughs> guns are being imported from different Mm -hmm. countries all across the sea and that's just something you know they have to be u.s legal so the importer has they make sure that they're legal for the u.s because they have to be imported as a like they can only import weapons that can be classified as a for used for sporting purposes Mm. um so it can't be like military grade weapons um and then you know the definition of what a sporting purpose is can vary based on the administration. Um, it's a kind of a gray area when it comes to that. But, mm. I mean, it's regulated by the federal government, by the ATF Bureau. Um, yeah. and it's just something I think a lot of people aren't aware of. Is there, uh, were there other findings in the report that you got your hands on that were not already, had not already been made public? Yeah. So um, this was basically a summary of the main things he told lead detectives after his arrest. Um, and he told them about his w- weapon and about the ammo. And he also seemingly confirmed that he is the one who wrote this racist manifesto that police have linked to him, but they're not necessarily tying directly to him, at least from what he told police. Um, He went into the Walmart in El Paso, uh, came back out. He said he finished and published the man and like uploaded it online um, and then went back in and started shooting. Um, He also said that he was, you know, he had ear protection on. He was obviously carrying an AK-47, which we've seen from, 
you know, the surveillance cameras, but he, he said he was surprised uh, that no one tried to stop him or shot back at him. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing, like we know police have said that he cooperated fully, like he surrendered once they encountered him. He actually said when he left the store, he tried to call 911 but couldn't get through to a dispatcher, so he was on his way back to the store when he encountered the, like, the Texas Rangers. Wow, wow. Uh, and Alex, do we have you on the line? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Alex, uh, tell us, first of all, where you are right now. Hopefully right somewhere now, I am in El Paso. Um, you know, Frost was wondering, I'm not in a Denny's, not in an Applebee's. Um, <laughs> got to hit the road and head back to Austin. But yesterday, I was at the second meeting of the newly formed Texas Safety Commission. Got it. And so, um, first of all, step us back one second. We, the Tribune reported last week about a fundraising letter from Governor Abbott that had created a stir in the day before the El Paso massacre. Tell us a little bit about what was in that letter and why uh, it raised some red flags. Right. So Abbott had sent out this fundraising mailer that was dated one day before the deadly shooting in El Paso. And basically he used alarmist language to, uh, warn about, um, you know, what would happen if we allowed immigrants into the country. Um, and he basically warned about the supposed political implications that could come with unchecked illegal immigration. And so it was rhetoric, I think, that especially, um, especially with this incident the following day, this massacre the following day, angered folks who basically said this was like, you know, dog whistle, and this is the kind of language that is leading to uh, outcomes like this. What did Abbott say uh, yesterday, Thursday, about that fundraising letter? Right. So he didn't take too many questions from reporters. In fact, I think this was the only question he took, but someone did ask him if he, you know, should be changing his rhetoric, especially after the shooting. And he did say that, quote, mistakes were made and said that he had a chance to visit with the El Paso delegation um, about the letter. He said that meeting was private. Neither him nor members of the delegation really wanted to talk about what happened and what the apology was. Um, but Abbott did say he had the opportunity to visit with the delegation. And, you know, in his words, course correction has been made. But, you know, in those short remarks that he gave reporters, he didn't address the specific language of the letter, what mistakes were made, or, you know, what course correction had been made on his end. Mm -hmm. That's some interesting use of the passive voice right there. I mean, <laughs> Ross, what do folks, what do, what do elected officials normally mean when they say mistakes were made? Uh, they usually mean, um, I, I goofed. <laughs> it's a I way to say it, yeah. I goofed without putting your name in it or making it sound active. You know, they screwed up. Mm. They um, they were they used a really incendiary message to you know supporters. You know, obviously they didn't do it with the El Paso shooting in mind, but it landed the day before the El Paso shooting. And in that light, I mean, even without that light, it was the kind of thing that would turn your head. It's just you know. Um, it's out there a little bit, but but in light of the El Paso shooting and in light of the manifesto that this shooter put out, um, it's a really damning document. You know, not the kind of thing a politician would want to be associated with. And Abbott not only apparently didn't want to be associated with that, he didn't want to be associated with the authorship. Right. I mean, is your sense that, you know, Republican lawmakers, Republican elected officials are going to sort of rethink the tenor of, of their messaging on these types of issues? Well, I think everything's contextual. And if you say, you know, if you say something and it's okay in one context and the context changes, then you have to change your language. The context 
here has clearly changed. There was a time uh, not long ago in Texas politics where the conversations about immigration and about immigrants were relatively uh, welcoming. And, you know, Rick Perry got in trouble famously in a presidential race for saying, you know, you, if, you don't, if you don't send uh, dreamers to college, you just don't, you don't have, have a heart. heart. Yeah. Um, and we've gone from that rhetoric to a different kind of rhetoric. You know, um, Perry in another race got in trouble because he was too soft on immigration. Now, you know, we've been, we're in an environment where um, Republicans in particular have been very, very strident and um, extreme in their language about immigration and immigrants. And in light of the shooting, that looks even harsher than it looked before the shooting. Right. But it's even changed, I think, like you hear words like Abbott and other top Republicans talking about things like how white supremacy, like that's seemingly new. Like this is something they're coming out and like really condemning. Condemning now in a way. Right. Yeah. Like accepting that it's part of our society. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, what else did you learn out of this uh, safety commission? What are what are elected officials trying to do, trying to accomplish, and did they make any progress toward that yesterday? Right. So the El Paso delegation is pretty steadfast in saying that they're focused mainly on healing right now and making sure that the governor and you know the rest other state officials really double down on the fact that this was an attack targeting um, Mexicans, targeting Hispanics, and they want to. Um, that language to be used more prominently. Um, but I think uh, this meeting was very similar to the last in that everyone left feeling as though no option was off the table. I think at the, at one point said, um, you know, they were talking about things like training workers in stores like Walmart, improving online safety for students, and then even banning assault weapons. So I don't think at this point anything is off the table, especially um, as we head into the 2021 uh, legislative session. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks to all of you. That's all the time we have today. Thanks to Texan Sense, the Texas Farm Bureau, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and the Texas Conference for Women, our sponsors this week. An extra special thanks, as always, to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Alex, Aaliyah, Jolie, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. <laughs>